One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Welcome to the Intercooler podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 184 of the Intercooler podcast with me, Dan Prosser, and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. Um, now, regular listeners will know that from time to time we like to pick out a interesting character from the car industry, from the, the past or the present, and dedicate an entire episode to that individual. It was only a matter of time, really, before we chose Enzo Ferrari. Um, that's exactly who we're talking about this week. Actually, there's probably no better subject for one of these podcasts than Enzo Ferrari. What a life that man lived. Um, we also talk a little bit about the 296 GTB, Ferrari's latest sort of baby mid-engined supercar. Um, we also talk about a couple of very special new Ferraris that have been announced recently. Um, but before we get started, I will just remind you all to subscribe or follow. So whatever app you're using, whatever podcast app you're using to listen to this episode, there'll be a little button that says subscribe or follow. Just hit that. It really helps us. It helps us find a bigger audience. The bigger the audience, the more we can do with this podcast, the better it gets. So please do that. Thank you very much. Andrew, we'll come to Enzo in a moment. Yes. But there's... You're talking about my dog again. No, we're not talking about your dog, who is named after this week's podcast subject. But... Um, there's a couple of sort of newsy bits that we need to get through. Yeah. Because over the weekend, um, Ferrari announced two, <laughs> well, two new track specials. Um, one which is really quite extraordinary, isn't it? We'll come to that. But the first is the 296 Challenge. I mean, for years, Ferrari has built these Challenge cars, yeah. haven't they? Racing versions. I think the of three, sort of... 348 was the first one. I yeah, think. yeah. So the yeah. the junior supercar, the yeah. engine supercar, yeah. racing version for a one make series. Yeah, it's the basically it's the it's the first run on the sort of Ferrari racing ladder. If you want yeah. to race a car that's designed to be a racing car by Ferrari, um, that's where you start. And presume you've driven, what, at least one of them? Maybe I've driven the, I mean, that's the first one. I've driven their 355 wow. years and years and years ago. Yeah. Um, which was, I mean, it wasn't a lot more than, I think it had a bit of suspension. It was on slicks and it had a cage, that sort of thing. But basically it was a very standard. I can't remember mm. what they had with the F1 shift and they probably did have paddles. Um, 
but it was just basically here's a road car with some race bits on it. Mm. But now, I mean, okay, the, the most recent I have driven, I did drive the Evo version of the 488, which is the one they've used until now because they never did an F8 one. Um, but I'm quite familiar with the pre Evo 488 because I've done a bit of um, sort of uh, demo driving uh, in one. They are unbelievable things mm, they probably got quite serious over time didn't they well they're actually the, the, what, the great thing about them what I admire about them so well two things I really admire about them I mean, unlike a sort of you, know, you look at them you think oh that's like a sort of a GT4 car mm. but they are, they are left completely uncorked so if yeah. you drive a you know a GT4 I don't know McLaren 570S then you know they, they have to because of the um, keeping everything even they have to knock hundreds of horsepower. I think that's mm. sort of down like 430 horsepower. This thing's got the same amount of power as the road car. So you've got a car with 660 horsepower. Mm. Um, it hasn't got an awful lot of aero. Um, and yet they are so brilliantly good to drive. They're such friendly cars mm. that even idiots can get into them and drive them really, really fast. And it makes them feel like heroes. I love them. I think they're really, <laughs> really cool things. So there's a new one, 296 Challenge. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure Ferrari are about to pick up the phone and offer us both a race in one of those. So we'll... I can confirm my we'll, availability. <laughs> indeed. We'll listen out for that. Okay, but the, the special one is the 499P Modificata, isn't it? Which is actually, it's lunacy, really. It's a de-restricted Le Mans winning hypercar. Yeah. I mean, it's... Unbelievable. Yes, I mean, it, oh, what can I say? And, and I didn't see this coming, which is stupid because if you've thought about it, you know, they do it with their Formula One cars. They have their F1 Cliente mm. program where very um, well heeled clients of theirs can go and drive, you know, much older Ferrari Formula One cars. It just never occurred to me that they do it with their Le Mans program as mm. well. But if you think about it, it's an absolute no brainer. Do you know what, <clears throat> what it costs? 4.6 million before taxes. 4.6 million before taxes. And I think they said it's strictly limited in numbers. I'm sure it is. Yeah, but have they said what the... No. <laughs> no. Strictly <laughs> limited to the number we'd sell. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, I mean, if you think about it, it's a complete no-brainer. And, and and do you think Porsche are going to do the same thing? Because actually, the Porsche would be, because it's an MDH car, because it's, you know, it's a... Mm. There's much more sort of off-the-peg componentry on that. Porsche could afford to do one much more affordably. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it just strikes me as being such a, an obvious move I'm, I'm, I'm really annoyed with myself I didn't see it coming but also people are going to be queuing up if you've got the money you're going to, you're going to be queuing up to buy one of these because it is the Le Mans winner it's got that pedigree yeah. it's Ferrari yeah um, it's, uh, what an amazing time this is where if you have the money you can go and buy yourself the hypercar that Ferrari races at Le Mans it's just extraordinary I mean it, it, it I mean, Porsche obviously did this in the 1980s when anyone could go and buy a 962. Mm, mm. Um, I guess the key difference is when people went and bought 962, I think Porsche sold well over 100, well over 100 private yeah. 962s. Yeah. Um, people went and raced them. Mm. Well, you can't race this, can no, you? No. All you can do is turn up to, I think there are nine events mm. a year which Ferrari organised, which presumably you're not going to go to all of them. Mm. Um, and they'll wheel your car out. They look after your car. If you want to do anything else with it, so if you want to, I don't know, just drive it yourself somewhere, mm. you've got to give Ferrari some more money to do that. Have you? Of course yeah. you have. Yeah. Of course yes. you have. It's available, it's available, but under separate negotiation. God, I bet that is going to be an extraordinary thing to drive. Um, do you know, but there's, what was it, last year? 
I think Red Bull Racing announced its five million pound track only hypercar, yeah, the Adrian Newey design thing, yeah. Um, so <laughs> what a world we're living in, where you can spend five nuts, million yeah. quid. But it's but it's what you said. It's the fact it's a Ferrari Le Mans winner. Yeah, that's that, the credibility. Now it's there not is. the same. Um, because a well, in, in one respect, it's it's better because it doesn't have to apply. To, you know, because you can't race it because it's not homologated for anything. None of the rules apply. So um, it's got you know, and um, the the engine hasn't got a restrictor on it. They can do funny things with the aero. But on the other hand, they've clearly dialed it down a notch or two for the gentleman driver. Mm. You know, they say that they've been through all the electronics and all yeah. the suspension. Yeah. So clearly, it's going to be. You're not going to need to be James Collado to mm. you know to get the most out of it, which is which, which would be which, pointless if it was set up like the Le Mans winning hypercar. Yeah, who could actually drive that? Other well, exactly. Than those guys? And, and why would you want a car if all its its only role in life would be to make you look like an idiot every time you get in it? Yeah. yeah. So it's so, so clearly they've done that. What they haven't said is because you know on the one hand I think it's got has it got more power? Yes, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but they say they've played with the air. What they haven't said, you say so you think if it's got more power and it's got. It's got special Pirelli tyres, hasn't it, mm. which don't have to, again, so they can be presumably much softer and much quicker. But they haven't actually said it's quicker than the Le Mans car. No, I would be surprised if it is. Oh, and, so would I. And they've fiddled with the aero, presumably to give it a more sort of linear ramp up. Yeah. Because the, the aero on a, a, you know, a works racing car is going to be very peaky, isn't it? And idiots like us wouldn't get anywhere near it. Yeah. But clearly they've... Totally re- yeah. reconfigured the aero package to make the thing more accessible. Yeah, I mean there are two things. It's like sort of looking at the power of an engine and only looking at its peak yeah. power. Yeah, that's you know that's actually you know you think oh it's got x thousands of kilograms at a particular speed. That's just a snapshot, mm. and it's actually the way the yeah. aero arrives, yeah. how quickly, and as you say, how linear it is, which actually determines how easy the car is to drive. Mm. And obviously that's what they've been, I think, quite rightly focusing. I I just find. I mean, I, I think these cars are absolutely fine. Uh, I've absolutely no problem. I mean, people will be going, oh, idiots, who's going to spend £4.6 million on a car that's, you know, you can only drive when Ferrari tells you you can drive and you never get to have it at home and everything But, you know, if, if you're in that league and that's what you want to do, you've probably got a few other toys to play with as well, haven't absolutely. you? Absolutely. And you just want to be part of that game. And you just want to think, you, yeah, you want to be out there in your Le Mans winning Ferrari. It'll be the same tub. I know the cockpit is identical. Mm. I mean, I think the experience, I think you probably need to be very familiar with both cars to be able to tell the difference and probably a pretty good driver too. And it's fine. I mean, it's not it's not relevant and pff, I, 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 I can't understand the numbers. Mm. Just the sheer mm. amount of money. But that's what people want to do. And there are plenty of people out there who've got that money and are yeah, prepared to well, spend certainly, it. Certainly enough. Plenty. Well, enough, yes. Um, okay, so Ferrari 296 GTB. Yeah. Let's not give it away because you have been, you spent a week in one, best part of a week in one. You're going to write about it, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's not much news here because, I mean, the car's been out for over a year and we've written about it extensively. But, but, but so, so, yeah, so, but, yeah, all, all I'm going to do is because all the stories have been these sort of, you know, understandably, there I was, you know, yeah. skidding it around the track. Um, the story I haven't read is just what these things are like to live with. So mm. I took it to the supermarket. I took it to a the BMW i5 launch. Mm. You know, I live with it. I, you know, it was just my daily driver for a week, and um, I'm going to write about that. Brilliant. Um, okay, but just sort of brief impressions. I mean, I know you've driven the 296 GTB before. Yeah. But where does it? How does it compare to? It clearly replaces the F8 Tributo, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. What do you reckon? 
And it's what? a bit of a depar- de- departure for Ferrari because it's a V6. Yeah. Lots of hybrid on it. Yeah. Um, this also, there are two particular things about this car. One is the colour. <laughs> yes. It's in the colours. If you happen to know about these things, and my guess is that most people don't, it's in the race colours of Maranello Concessionaires. Mm. Maranello Concessionaires was the British base. One of four private teams along with the North American racing team in North America, Scuderia Filippinetti in Switzerland and Ecurie National Belge and funnily enough Belgium that were Ferrari's favourite private teams. Um, and yeah, a bloke called Ronnie Hall, Colonel Ronnie Hall ran Maranello concessionaires and he painted his Ferraris in these rather startling red and pale sort of baby blue. Mm. And so that's the livery of this car. And every time I posted about this car anywhere on Twitter or Instagram, that's all anybody talks about. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair to say. I think they find the color challenging, the, the, the challenging. Mm. and and it sort it doesn't annoy me. But I just, I just, I'm not terribly interested in what color a press car happens to be. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, I want to know what it's like to drive. Um, I mean, they are absolutely amazing things. Mm. Um, the other thing about this particular car was it had the Assetto Fiorano pack on it. Yeah. Um, which is well, it's basically it, it, it's a it's like it's almost like a sort of track pack, isn't it? Mm. It's got multi passive dampers on mm. it and lots of other bits. And I think I can say that if you're going to live with one of these cars daily, I don't imagine many people will. But I wouldn't have the Assetto Fiorano pack on. No. Um, no, it does. It does fundamentally. It doesn't just allow the car to do things it couldn't otherwise do. It fundamentally changes the character of the car, it turns it into a slightly different sort of car. Mm. Um, but you know, happily, you know, I'm, I know the car, the standard car, without it well, and I know what a an incredibly accomplished. And you, you drove it, and that powertrain is just unbelievable, bonded, isn't it? Unbelievable! How well integrated the hybrid hybridity yeah. is. Yeah, it's just staggering. It feels crazy fast. Yeah, the V6 sounds good. It does sound good, doesn't it? it really does. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't absolutely. expecting that. Probably better yeah. than the old V8, actually, the twin turbo V8. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's got much more character. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what you say about the integration of the of the hybrid system because at the same time I had a I'm going to get its name wrong, but it's the it's the AMG Mercedes, <laughs> yes. it's the four door GT 63 plus E hybrid. Yeah. It's the nut. It's 170 grand. Is it that much? Yeah. Oh. 843 horsepower. Yeah. So similar sort of horsepower to the Ferrari. Also, obviously, a plug-in hybrid. Mm. And the Mercedes hybrid integration is utterly rubbish compared to the is Ferraris. It? Yeah. Wow. It's, uh, you know, when you transit from one to the other, the way, you know, you, you never, in the Mercedes, you never really know what you're going to get. Sometimes you put your foot down and you think, oh, lovely, that's quite fast. Mm. And sometimes you put your foot down and it wants to take your head off it's so rapid and you never really know what you're going to get weird so it deploys its hybrid in a strange way and the ferraris yeah. it's so well integrated mm. apart from the fact you can now silently swish past your neighbors at five yeah it's quite good that, without, it? it's bloody brilliant yeah yeah it's absolutely fantastic yeah. um so yes yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward i'm not gonna give any more away because you know it's a story that's going to be on the uh, on the ti website and app sometime in the next week or so yeah um looking forward to writing it a few hopefully interesting thoughts about just the sort of the reality of these cars i'm always focused on what these cars are like to use and to live with rather than what they just mm. are to like, like to drive because that's actually what people experience when they have them yeah. they're not always flinging them around great racetracks yeah. in wonderful parts of the world yeah i mean it is a staggering car um all i'll say is <clears throat> slightly damp roads fourth fourth gear yeah foot straight down. line 
system's on. Yeah. Wheel spin. <laughs> it gets your attention. Again, I think that's the that's the Assetto Ferrano thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, probably. I, th- is. I, th- I, th- I think it is. It, and, and also, you know, it's not like it was on cut two R's no. or anything. It's no. on four S's. Yeah. It's on a really fairly moderate tire. Fairly moderate tire. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly, uh, as you say, all systems on in a straight line, not standing water or anything, just no. damp. Mm. I mean, I reckon it would. I, I reckon it would spin them up at 100 miles an hour without any problem at all. That's 800 plus horsepower through two driven wheels, isn't it? It's just and all that. Yeah, and this is like the sort of this is like the sort of the baby Ferrari, isn't it? It's, this is where it's I, just... I can't get my head around it. I can't get my head around it. Where does it end? Well, yeah, and and also, you know, I did really enjoy it, and I do really, really admire it. But how much of that resource was I using? Mm. Mm. Almost all of the time, mm. a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Um, okay, let's move it on. Though we are talking about Enzo, Enzo, Anselmo, Giuseppe, Maria, Maria Ferrari. Yeah, <clears throat> born twentieth of February eighteen ninety eight. Allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> oh yes, okay. Yeah, a couple of days either side. Yeah, yeah. died aged ninety. Good mm-hmm. age, fourteenth of August nineteen eighty eight. Yeah, I just joined Autocar. Yes. Yeah. Um, he died within a few miles of where he was born. Born in Modena, Italy. Died in Marinello. Um, and that's quite significant. And we'll sort of get to it later on. Um, <clears throat> we're doing this now because I've... Actually, I've not quite finished Brock Yates's book. Enzo yeah. Ferrari, The Man and the Machine. <laughs> and and well, I, I need to talk about this now because a lot of my sort of observations come from that book. Yeah. And we need to be a bit careful here. You've called this book recently a polemic you've called it a hatchet job yeah. on the podcast yeah do you think yates had an agenda oh what a good question do i think he had an yes i think he did um i knew brock a little bit mm. um because we used to correspond i mean i've never met him but we used to correspond and i guess it must be faxes back then i can't remember um at motorsport and he was a, he was a really really good guy but i think he set out to prove a point mm um i, th- I yeah. think he had a, a, an idea in his head and which is not to say that i mean i think it's a wonderful book it's an absolutely mm. great book and uh, and i think it's a fantastic counter to all this stuff about the legend of ferrari yeah um, and i think in many ways by turning him into such a very um flawed human person mm. um the character of the man and the reality of the man becomes that much more clear as as a result um so i think actually in the long run i'm not sure that brock yates has really even done him much damage but um yeah i mean i don't think that he that's the sort of book that you read and you think to yourself well he's clearly gone into this with a completely open mind Mm. and over the course of his research he discovered that he was um you know a slightly tricky customer he's perhaps he just set out to counter a lot of the fawning stuff written by apologists exactly because there's so much of that i think that's exactly right Mm. um yeah i've I've recently um read a book called oh what's it called mom darling it's a craig brown book it's called 99 glimpses of princess margaret Mm. um it's one of the funniest books i've ever read (laughs) it's not the sort of book you can read in public because you just look like a complete buffoon guffawing (laughs) on the tube um but quite clearly he set out to do to Princess Margaret what Brock Yates really? set out to do to mm. uh, to Enzo Ferrari, and and I think you can read these books, and I think they they do provide probably quite a useful balance, and I think as long as you see both sides of it, then you can draw your own conclusions. Mm. 
Yeah, so um, the Brock Yates book it is, if nothing else, a very detailed account of Enzo's life and, yes. and his racing activities. Yes. Unbelievable detail. Yeah. It's far more detailed than we can be with this, <clears throat> this podcast. It, it's not going to be a full and exhaustive biography, this episode. We'd need several episodes to do that. I think we will trot through some of his early life for context, touch on the more significant events later on. But actually, I just want this to be a discussion about the man, about his character, yeah. about his achievements. Yeah. And like Brock Yates did, try and cut through some of the, the more gushing, over-the-top stuff. Yeah. Because that, this is a flawed man that we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> actually, it's also good timing to do this because there is a film coming, isn't there? The Michael Mann film um, with Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz coming out around Christmas. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was out. I thought it was out. Yeah, so it's released in the UK around Christmas time. Okay. Um, and actually, our mate Marino Franchitti did some of the driving. He did. He was Eugenio Castellotti, wasn't he? Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah. yeah and he's sporting I... a wig, isn't he? He yeah, does yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, he's actually posted pictures of him. Yes, um, he has. Yeah, Marino doesn't have quite as much hair as, uh, as Castellotti. So. <laughs> no. But there are ways around that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Enzo Ferrari, clearly the founder of Ferrari, but also a racing driver of some um, ability. I think he was good. Yeah. I think he was good. I think it's one of the things that uh, because he was doing it a very, very long time ago. Um, so his most notable result was he came second in the Targa Florio in 1920. Um, and, you know, he won quite a lot of local stuff. Yeah. I think that today, he'd be been, been, been out there at this age, he, he'd be a sort of, you know, one of the sort of front-running GT3 drivers, that sort of thing. Mm, yeah. um, but I think he recognised, um, because, you know, he grew up in the era of you know, of, New, of Nuvolari and, yeah. you know, and the original Antonio Ascari, who were... I mean, just giants of the sport. Gods, yeah. Gods. I think he realised from absolutely from the outside that he was never going to be in that level. I also get the impression that what Enzo Ferrari recognised was that you had to be a certain sort of nutter, particularly yeah. then. And also, you know, throughout the rest, when racing was at its most dangerous. Um, and guys like, you know, Campari and Antonio Ascari and Tazio Nuvolari, they would put their lives on the line. Mm. They knew the consequences. And to them, racing was all-consuming. It mm. was, you know, to use the Tom Cruise phrase, it wasn't what they did, it's who I am. Um, <laughs> and so they would make those sacrifices. I don't think that Enzo ever wanted to, mm. to do that. Mm. Um, and I think he soon recognised that, um, you know, that sorry, he started off in driver management, didn't he? Yeah. With, you know, he founded Scuderia Ferrari in 1929, mm. I think. Yeah. And he was just offering you know, a sort of race service to wealthy young amateurs. Mm. So he, I mean, I think he was quite open about his shortcomings as a racing driver. Yeah. Certainly later on he wrote about them and he said he just didn't have that fearlessness that mm. you needed. But he, as you say, he won some local Grand Prix actually, so yep. at a good standard. Um, so he was no mug in a car. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But yes, in, so in 1929, founded his racing team. And quite soon he was running Alfa Romeo's uh, racing yeah. program. Yeah. Now, so the context is, is... In the early 1930s, and Alfa Romeo is what you, you know, if you like, this is so broad brush, but in the 1920s, if you wanted to win big, you usually needed a Bugatti. Mm. By the 1930s, Alfa Romeo had kind of taken over that crown. And in the early 1930s, before the Germans came along, yeah. so before Auto Union Mercedes came along with the Silver Arrows and just completely changed the face of racing, mm. um, you know, what you wanted was uh, an Alfa Romeo, an 8C, um, mm. you know, beautiful straight eight Alphas. And Alfa Romeo itself, I think it had got itself into some financial strife and the last thing it needed was having a big race team on its hand. So they basically farmed it out to Enzo. Mm. Um, and he became the sort of de facto works team. But it was Scuderia Ferrari. And I mm. think it was at the Spa 24 hours in 1932, um, where, his, where eight Cs came first and second, that the, the famous Shield... Mm. The prancing horse first appeared on the side of the car. And so he, from 32 to whenever it was, in the late 30s, 37 or 38 maybe, um, yeah, all the success that Alfa Romeo had in that period, you know, we remember Nuvolari winning the 1935 German Grand Prix to the complete befuddlement and yes. amazement yeah. of the... You know, of the, of the Auto Union and the Mercedes team. And presumably a short man called Adolf as well. Yeah, and absolutely a short man yeah. called Adolf, because this, uh, this was not part of the plan at all. Mm. Um, and that was all done on, well, okay, he had a fairly handy driver called, uh, called Nuvolari. But even so, you know, the P3, the Monoposto Alpha P3, which is one of the most legendary uh, of all pre war racing cars, it was completely outgunned, it was completely outdated. Um, and so what they needed was a superhero driver on an extraordinary track. And, you know, that's what happened. Mm. It was, um, and that was, you know, that was Enzo. That was his team that did mm. that. Mm. Um, and after a bit, Alpha took it back in-house, um, made Enzo its sort of team principal, mm. but now employed by Alfa Romeo, and that didn't last mm. um, because he didn't particularly enjoy it, having had all that autonomy. He didn't particularly enjoy having a boss again. Um, and so they fired him and off he hoddled. So I'm just trying to, so he's born... Uh, 1898 wasn't he yeah um, so yeah I mean even in his late 30s he's running a successful yeah racing team yeah, yeah absolutely so he's a, clearly a very capable guy um, long before he was the hero the legend that he, he, he is now yeah he was just very very good I at think, running a know, I, I, yes and, and I think he did it um, in the same way that he ran the Scuderia he was a master manipulator of people yes um, yeah. He knew absolutely how to get the best out of a driver, and it wasn't by you know being terribly nice. Mm. Um, you know, he 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 would pitch driver against driver. Um, he was very Machiavellian in the way that he went about it. But the thing is, I think everybody who raced for him, both for Alfa Romeo and later at Ferrari, um, knew what they were getting into, mm. and for him. It was all about the team. It was all about Scuderia Ferrari. And, you know, 
there were no secrets. You, you knew, as I said, you knew what you're getting into, and if you didn't like that, you didn't have to race for him. So and just to skip forward and pick up on a point you've made there, he described himself as an agitator of men, yeah, getting the best out of drivers, particularly by putting them up against one another in mm. competition, yeah, which is a fairly ruthless thing to do. Tony Brooks, he said, he thought that psych. He's talking about Enzo. He thought that psychological pressure would produce better results for the drivers. He would expect the driver to go beyond reasonable limits. You can drive to the maximum of your ability, but once you start psyching yourself up to do things that you don't feel are within your ability, it gets stupid. There was enough danger at that time without going over the limit. And, you know, and if you, I mean, Tony Brooks, um, sadly, the very late lamented, absolutely brilliant Tony Brooks, um, who was one of Ferrari's most successful drivers in the 1950s. Um, you know, he would know. Um, and he was one of these very calm, quiet, but beneath it all, immensely strong characters. Mm. And also, I think, you know, if you look at the other drivers that he employed, he employed a lot of British drivers. You think of Brooks, you think of Peter Collins, you think of Mike Hawthorne, and how hard he tried to get Sterling Moss. Mm. Um I think it was a whole other level of pressure if you're an Italian driver. Oh gosh, yeah. You if can you are Ascari, if yeah. you are Castellotti, if you are if you are um, Luigi Musso, um, bearing the weight of not just you know Enzo Ferrari, but basically the country on your back too, mm. that level of expectation. Um, and I think that's something that Ferrari ruthlessly exploited. I mm. think he just thought that was absolutely fair game because mm. if that made them go quicker, um, you know, he knew that. Almost any driver would just drop everything to drive for Ferrari. Um, so if they failed, he could fire them. If something terrible happened, he could replace them. Um, and all that mattered in the meantime was that you know they were doing the best they possibly could um, for the team. Mm. So I mean, we did skip ahead. So long before any of that happened... Um, 1939 founded Auto Avio Costruzioni. Yes. Um, not a glamorous business, um, but manufacturing components for various vehicles. War, um, World War Two kicks off. He did make two cars. Yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he did. He um, did and, and the reason it was called AAC um, was he had a restricted covenant in his contract yeah. with Alfa Romeo which banned him from putting his own name on a car for four years mm. um, so he created these it was a Fiat Belila based car he made two of them they entered the 1940 Brescia Grand Prix which is basically the Mille Miglia or he couldn't go right around Italy so I think they did nine laps of a 110 mile circuit or something um, Ascari drove one of them and they, they certainly led their class um, and then I think they both broke, and so neither finished. But it, it, this was like a one and a half litre straight eight car. Mm, mm. Um, two were made, one survives. Wow. Um, and it's you know it was an, it, that's the, that car is the first Ferrari, whether it's yeah. got a prancing horse on its nose or not. Mm. Um, and there's one left in the world, and it's a, it's a fascinating insight into the way his mind was working. I mean, it couldn't be exactly what he wanted to be because he wouldn't have had the money and there wasn't the time and mm. the war was going on and, and everything else um but you know it was very very light i think it weighed about 650 kilos it had basically two fiat two four-cylinder fiat engines glued together um and yeah off he went so and certainly once italy joined the war and no one was racing um, yeah he wasn't building racing cars anymore no just manufacturing components or different vehicles and then of course, like so many other manufacturing businesses at that time, 
forced to make to produce components sure. for the, the fascist government yep. for the war effort. Um, so he he was part of that. Um, but th- after the war, 1947, this is where the Ferrari story, as we know it, really gets going. Isn't Correct. It? When he yeah. starts building cars under his yeah. hand. Yeah, and, and it's funny to think that he's already okay. He's not an old man then, but he's mm. he's in his fiftieth year already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's knocking on the door of you know mm. he's certainly you know a very middle aged man by then. Yeah, and all the things we think about when we think about Ferrari. Hadn't even happened. Hadn't begun. Yeah, actually, that is an amazing point. Yeah. He, he was yeah just about. 50. So anybody who thinks because they're oh yeah, yeah. they're a bit hit, about to hit the big five zero, yeah. and therefore they might be a bit past it. How could you possibly start anything new? Well, Enzo. Mm, that's yeah. a very very good point. Um, it's never too late. The, one of the things that I find fascinating, and perhaps this is because of the success that Enzo had at, um, at Alfa Romeo, but he. In the very early days of Formula One, so 1950 onwards, he was able to attract the biggest names in racing, yeah. the best designers yeah. and engineers. Yeah. And actually, at this point, Ferrari as a team hasn't won a great deal. No. But he... But Ferrari... There was something... As a, but Ferrari as a person has. Yeah, he has, yeah. You know, Ferrari ran the greatest Italian racing team that they'd ever been. So that must have been it, mustn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So people wanted to... They were lining up to, to work for this guy. Yeah. Uh, well, and also, you know, what was the opposition? So there was Alfa mm. Romeo in the in the very early 50s. Well, yeah. you know, they, they, you know they, they tended to have, th- you know, three, sometimes four cars. And so if you weren't part of that crew, mm. you know... Mm. There was no one else, you know. You, you know, if you couldn't race for a Ferrari or Alfa Romeo, you had to go and race some ancient Talbot or something. Yeah, the Germans were back Alta in the game, or an ERA or something. Mm. Uh, I mean, the Germans were completely out of it. Um, so, you know, I think simply by being available, mm. and also, although you know, he didn't, you know, so he won his first Formula One Grand Prix at Silverstone in 1951. But actually, they won, he, he was winning races from 1948 onwards. Mm. And I think he established himself pretty quickly, certainly as being far and away the best of the rest. Mm. Um, and, you know, he clearly had, um, with that Colombo V12 engine, he certainly had the, the wherewithal to, to get the job done. Um, and then Aurelio Lampredi designed the big V12 that he won, you know, that Silverstone racing. And then, you know, he, and he was a clever guy. So the reason that he won that Formula One race at Silverstone 1951 and basically turned the entire history of racing on its nose and ended the Alfa Romeo era was because Alfa Romeo had one and a half litre supercharged cars. And Enzo Ferrari realised, because he built those, that he couldn't keep up with them. Mm. They were just too good. So the alternative was to do a naturally aspirated four and a half litre car, which would not have as much power as the Alphas, but used a fraction of the fuel. Mm. And it was by doing something different and designing a brand new four and a half litre V12. Um, and basically at Silverstone 1951, they basically he won, they, they won the race because they needed, to, well, Gonzalez won the race because he need, didn't need as much fuel as the, mm. as the Alpha. And um, yeah, and that was it. You know, I think Alpha won one more Grand Prix that season and hasn't won one since. Mm. Interesting, isn't it? And Ferrari went on to win the next two championships back-to-back. So, exactly, with Alberto Ascari, yeah. 1952 and 1953. Yeah. Back-to-back championships. Yeah. And if nothing... I mean, that has established Scuderia Ferrari as and from, a top I think, team. June 52 to June 53, an entire calendar year, nobody other than Ascari won a race. Mm. Yeah, blind. Not even Max has done that. No. 
Yeah. Gosh. So, I mean, the the success really did follow very, very quickly after yeah. he founded the race team under his own name. Um, so I, I just want to talk about his what his fundamental capabilities were. We spoke about him being an ag- agitator of men, getting the best out of men in a fairly sort of cutthroat kind of way. Um, later on, he liked to be called Ingeniere. Engineer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was he? No. <laughs> no. He didn't like being called Commendatore, which is what I think yeah. is most... He obviously... I, I think probably his greatest strength, uh, which is what people probably like least about him, was his ability to attract the right people, whether yeah. those people were drivers or whether they were engineers. And if you look at the quality of the engineers, the people who produced, you know, the, you know people we've talked about like Colombo and Lampredi, I mean, they were, they were just the best. Yeah, they were the best, you know, and and people always got, you know, ended up getting unbelievably pissed off with him and disappearing, and you know, it happened in the early nineteen sixties, didn't it? When you know, all his engineers and all walked out, and his driver, and, yeah. you know, and that was all doomed. Um, and in the end, people always just, you know, I think through his sheer force of personality, through the reputation he established in the nineteen thirties, whether you were an engineer, whether you were a driver, I mean, whoever you were, if you were in that business. You might not have liked Enzo Ferrari, but you wanted to work for Ferrari because that was your greatest chance of success. That was your greatest chance of, you know, of, of, of actually doing something which you'd be remembered for. Mm. And I think, you know, he's he's as good an example of success breeding success as, you, as, as you'll ever come across. Mm. The astonishing thing about him is he's the opposite of Colin Chapman. He was not an innovator at all. <laughs> the opposite, I mean, exactly. not remotely. So actually, let me give you some examples. Um, he... He forced his team to stick with traditional wire wheels yeah. long after um, they, they were known to be heavier and, I don't know, not as strong, perhaps, yeah, as exactly the modern right. alternative. Exactly right. yeah. um, he resisted the mid-engine layout for a long time, even though the smaller British teams had proved it to be better. Well, he did his first... Mid- so, the first, so, the writing was on the wall in 1957, mm. um, and he did his first mid-engine car in 1961. <laughs> Yeah, and that repeating the old re- refrain, the ox doesn't push the cart, um, yeah. which is a it's a curiously stubborn thing to do, isn't it? When you're so determined to win, wouldn't you be searching for every opportunity, every advantage? Yeah, but it's, it's but, but I mean to me that that proves the fact that he wasn't an engineer because yeah. I, I think that, I don't know. I mean, even I kind of understand. Now, I do understand why a mid-engine car mm. is advantageous, particularly on a racetrack. Um, and he either didn't understand that or was so pig-headed because maybe it hadn't been his idea. Mm. He just decided... He was also, you know, he was just, you know, there's that old, very you know, whole, whole, hoary old adage about, you know, when you buy a Ferrari, you, yeah. you buy the engine and they throw the rest of the car in free. He yeah. was absolutely wedded to his engines and he mm. thought that power would always win out. Which is which is nuts because you know a first year mechanical engineering student at university will mm. tell you that all an engine is going to do is help you gain speed, mm. whereas you know lightweight and everything else will help you in every single area. So you know he was very very stuck in the mud about things. Yeah, he was drum brakes as well. Drum he brakes pers- persevered with those for for years. Skeptical about aerodynamics. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah. Um, he clearly loved engines. That was. I can't his... think. And somebody, if anybody knows, 
I cannot think of anything that Ferrari did for the first time during Enzo Ferrari's lifetime. Mm. Now, there was the paddle shift gearbox on the Formula One cars, but he'd gone by then. Mm. Mm. So I can't think of a single innovation that made its debut on a Ferrari. Yeah, and you think what was going on in Norfolk at the time. Oh, my goodness. Over at Lotus. Yeah. Just staggering. Totally different approach. Um, We need to... We'll come on to the road cars in a little bit, because it's interesting, that side of it. Um, But... Tragedy was a common thread through his life, be it personal tragedy. Yeah. Lost his dad and his brother yep. when he was young. Yeah. Um, Spanish flu, wasn't it, I think? Yeah, that's yep. right. Um, he buried his firstborn, Dino. Um, he lost his wife later in life and lots and lots of drivers as well. Mm. Um, but also, I mean, this is just desperate, but there were a handful, actually quite a handful of spectators who were killed by his cars going off the road at certain events. Mm. Um, Patago, uh, particularly, the Mimilia yes, for the Mimilia, yeah. yeah. Some children involved in that as well. Yeah. They were killed. It's just awful. Yeah. I do wonder, what does all that do to a man? Do you have to switch something off? Otherwise, you just stop, wouldn't you? I think you have to... I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. You know. Luckily, it's not something that no. I don't know. But, but I think that he would have asked himself the question... Well, I think, first of all, he would have just thought, it's racing and it happens. And yeah. we cannot put ourselves in the mindset of people who are racing at that time, where it was so commonplace. It was, however tragic it was, there was nothing unusual about any of it. Mm. Um, but also, you know, I just think that he would have asked himself the question, and the, the answer was always the same. Did something that we built yeah. go wrong? Yeah. And it never, ever did. Mm. So this is a very important point about Enzo. I mean, he clearly um, was not afraid to agitate his drivers to put them under pressure. Yeah. But he didn't build weak cars he did just not. because they might be quicker. No. He built tough cars. I've said on this podcast before, I can't think of a single driver who's lost his life due to the failure of a Ferrari component. Mm. Even to Portago, um, which was, I think, probably after Le Mans 55, the second race, worst motor racing accident ever. I might be wrong about that, but I can't think of one offhand which was worse. That was a tyre. Yeah. I think it was an Anglais bear. Mm. Um, so I think in Enzo's mind, they were, he would have been able to... Also, I think, with Depot Totago, I think also um, he had the option to change the time. Yeah, he, but he chose not to. He chose he? not to. Yeah. Um, so Enzo would have gone, well, okay, that's, that's terrible, but it wasn't me. Mm. It wasn't my car. And all those accidents that happened to... You know, to Peter Collins, to Luigi Musso, to Eugenio Castellotti, to Alberto Ascari, all those people who died in Ferraris, and there were so many of them. Mm. Gilles Villeneuve. Gilles Villeneuve, yeah. Um, in all those cases, the one thing that didn't fail was the Ferrari. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, they, and, and so he would have either thought, well, it's not down to me, or it was just a tragedy. I mean, I think where it gets a bit murky is, you know, so you'd look at someone like Luigi Musso, who was quite a mentally vulnerable person. He has some big problems in his personal life. And there's no question at all that Ferrari was winding him up. Yeah. And he died at the French Grand Prix in 1958 at Reims. And if you've ever been to the Reims circuit, you'll have gone past the pits. And then there is a, the mother and father of all right-handers <laughs> after it. Um, and he just binned it um, yeah. with, you know, terminal consequences. And, you know, Ferrari would have thought, well, you know, he made a mistake, so nothing to do with me. But actually, you know, he was being wound up by Ferrari. 
you know, um, and there were Collins and Hawthorne at the team at the time who were probably also winding him up as well. Um, mm. And he wasn't in a met, in a fit state mentally to be taking on that kind of challenge. So, you know, it wasn't the Ferrari. So, you know, for Enzo was not directly responsible for that man's death. But could you really say that the pressure he'd been put under, the environment he, he was in, didn't contribute to that yeah. mistake? Yeah. This is sort of the... Actually, Enzo is a... He's an enigma or a paradox or there's so many contradictions around him. He's a complicated character. Yeah. And that's an example of and, it. And, and what I find fascinating about him is, you know, it's so easy to portray him as this sort of villainous, patrician, emotionless, cold figure. He mm. was anything but that. Mm. He, he cried all the time. Mm. Um, you know, if you talk, if you read in his biography about the loss of his son, it's heartbreaking yes. stuff. Yeah. So that uh, is, that is the, the tragedy that really affected him, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. Alfredo or Dino, as he was yeah. known, died aged twenty-four, muscular dystrophy. Um, I mean, he so never went to a race after. I think he, went, he might have gone to one race, but which, which was at the Autodromo Dino Ferrari, would have. But mm. he stopped going to races. It, it absolutely poleaxed him. Yeah, and a portrait of Dino. Resided on his office wall yeah. for all time. I think he's still there. Oh, gosh, so yeah, he really was affected by that. What do, what do we make of Alfredo? Um, he, he was a young man when he died, twenty four. Yeah, um, he was. Depending on what you read, he was a capable engineer. Brock Yates thinks probably not. Did he design that V six engine, the, the Dino V six, or do you think it was Yano? He, he, he did it with he did it with Vittorio Yano. Yeah. Um, exactly what I okay I think from what I've read and I've read a lot over the years I think that Dino was a nice lad who was really quite interested in it all but no genius mm. um I don't okay I don't think it's quite like I don't know a modern pop star claiming a writing credit because he or she wrote the last word of mm. the of the lyrics mm. or put the full stop on the end of it where it's literally the most notional thing um I think he was involved. Uh, he would have been consulted. Uh, I think he worked hard on it um, mm. while his health alive, uh, allowed. But no, it wasn't. You know, he certainly wasn't the sole author of that engine. I suspect no, no. he probably wasn't. The, but you know, but that's okay, isn't it? Yeah, it is fine. And, and Yano was actually one of the eminent engineers designers Sorry, of his he time. Was, I mean, he was. You know, he was. Up, he's up there. In my mind, he's up there with with Lampredi and Colombo. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the absolute gods mm. so it does seem more likely that the work was perhaps more his um but yeah as you say enzo ferrari was not a cold emotionless person actually later in life he was probably haunted and he he said i am convinced the only true love in this world is a father's love for his son uh, which is a, a curious <laughs> Sorry, thing to say, but, yes. <laughs> but he lots of people think he never recovered after dino's death and he became more withdrawn he was, he was certainly a different man after that yeah the dark sunglasses became yeah. a fixture he was in he certainly became a different person after that mm. Mm. um but you know but again you know he did form attachments to just a few drivers yes to nuvolari in the yes. 30s to Villeneuve in the 80s yeah um he unquestionably would have done with sterling mm. um if that had had come off um and i think he once said that he would never allow himself to feel that way about a driver after Nuvolari because he'd seen so many die. But I don't think, you know, he used to call Villeneuve the new Nuvolari. Really? Yeah. Oof. Because Villeneuve was such a tiger mm. because he would, he would put it all on the line. Yeah. Um, and I think 
Ferrari recognised something in him that he hadn't seen for half a century. Mm. Um, so yeah, he, he he was not a cold fish. No. Oh no. Absolutely on the. And I don't think you could even say that he didn't care about his drivers. No. He just cared about the team even more. Mm. And I think that's what you mm. have to understand. He to him Scuderia Ferrari was everything. It was his it was his day and his night and his sun and his shade. It was absolutely everything. And everything was expendable for the team. Mm. Um and yeah, rightly or wrongly, I personally I think it I, I think it's do I think it's slightly sad? I don't know. To be so motivated by your career and your legacy um and what it is you've done to the, to be able to behave in a way that i think most of us would just go well hang on you know that's just a that's just pushing it a bit too far Mm. um and the consequences of this are just you know not acceptable even for the greater good of the team but you know he clearly didn't feel that way so you're you're right villeneuve and nuvolari were the drivers he connected with most and he did love drivers who left everything out Mm. there um but actually, from his other drivers, he was quite detached. And Jody Schechter tells the story um, of winning the championship and hearing nothing from Enzo Ferrari yeah. until they walked past one another somewhere, maybe in Marinello. And all Enzo said was, hey, champion. That was all Jody Schechter ever got from Enzo Ferrari for winning the championship in one of his cars. It would be so interesting, wouldn't it, to... Sadly, we can't because they're all gone now. You know, Sterling and Tony, and you know, and you know, Collins and Hawthorne to have that conversation with them yeah. just to see whether they. Because I think those drivers that he had in the nineteen fifties, um, I think he was close to them. Um, maybe because he was more involved with stuff. Maybe because he still owned his company then. Um, you know, mm. don't forget by the time Jody was winning stuff, you know, yeah. Ferrari had been owned by Fiat for you know a decade or more. Um, It'd be really interesting to see whether that had always been been the case, but of course, they're all gone now. Mm. Yeah, all gone. Um, so we'll cut. Yeah, road cars. Let me just pull up one other thing. Later in his life, certainly, he's an old man. It seems to me that he was surrounded by yes men, apologists, yeah. people telling him what they thought he wanted to hear. Yeah. Um, so much so that, well, again, this is a Jody Schechter story. I remember one day I was briefing him on a race and a remark that the Cosworth, the DFV, had more power than we did. And the translator said to Jody, you can't say that. You can't tell him that the Cosworths have more power. So they were actually keeping the truth from the boss because they were scared of his temper, perhaps. Yeah. And, 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 and in whose best interest are yes. they, you know. Um, and I think that, I think a lot of that is, if you look at the... Well, we're going to talk about the road cars in a minute. But if you look at the road cars that were built towards the end of his life, I think probably with the sole exception of the F40, they they just weren't very good. Mm. Um, and hmm. things have really gone off the boil. If you look at the, you know, the, I mean, the 328 was all right, but that was a development of a car that existed in the, you know, in the mid-1970s. But the Testarossa and the 412s and these sort of things, they weren't great Ferraris. And I think things were quietly going off the boil and maybe it was that maybe because nobody was saying to him this just isn't good enough mm, mm. god it's just amazing that you would think that was for the best yeah it's very mealy mouthed isn't it really um 
So the the story about Enzo is that he wasn't really fussed about the road cars. That's absolutely true. Is that absolutely true? true. That's yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It, again, <laughs> it's the team. You know, he recognised from the absolute outset that you know, nineteen forty seven, nineteen forty eight. Um, you know, he had a great name, but he didn't have an awful lot of resources, um, and people weren't just going to give him money. He had to sell cars, mm. um, and that's the whole road car. I mean that enormous industry that it is today that we so admire um it just came out it was purely a matter of necessity because otherwise he wouldn't have had the money to go racing Mm. um and that's and that's you know he thought that um owners were well it's very disdainful of them wasn't oh completely (laughs) completely why would you i mean he just doesn't you know he just he didn't understand you know what i think he regarded them as you know because he was also, you know, he was quite a, you know, he wasn't aristocracy. Mm. He was quite, mm. um, and, and I think he probably was a bit chippy. Um, and, you know, he was very, you know, he could be extremely coarse. Um, and I think he just saw these people who came and gave him all this money to buy these quite flawed machines that he was making. I think he just thought that they were just <laughs> rich fools. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, you know, he was more than happy to take their money. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think he had any more time for them than that. What do you think, if we could talk to them now, what do you think people who did business with Enzo for a long time would say about him? What would Luigi Canetti say about Enzo Ferrari? Well, I mean, Canetti was one of the very few. So people don't know Luigi Canetti is he was, I mean, he was an amazing bloke, um, three-time Le Mans winner. He was the man who set up Ferrari in North America, mm. started the North American racing team. Um, he was one of the few people who would... You know, he, he was one of the greatest friends to Enzo Ferrari because almost unlike anybody else, he would tell Enzo Ferrari mm. um, what Enzo Ferrari needed to hear. And and Ferrari needed Canetti probably more than Canetti needed Ferrari. And so Ferrari would wear it. Um, I think that Canetti would think that he was a professionally a very very great man and personally a deeply flawed and probably quite sad and tragic individual Mm. and i I think that's probably as good a a view of him as 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 we're ever going to get that is the truth of enzo ferrari yeah that gets the heart of him yeah um so on the personal side he was married to i'm assuming it's laura rather than laura yeah Um, she was quite formidable Garello, yeah for 55 years they were yeah they were married yeah as dino's mother yeah. Um, but Enzo kept a mistress, Lina Lardi. Lina Lardi. Decades as Piero's mother. Yeah. Um, Piero. He's got, Piero owns 10%, 10% of Ferrari. He's a very wealthy man. Oh isn't he? my goodness. He is a very wealthy man. Yeah. Um, but uh, perhaps he was of a certain era, but he had this wife, he had this mistress, and it sounds like he wasn't faithful to either of them. No. Um, no, I don't think he got on with Lara terribly well. I think no. Lara was quite a formidable person. And later in life, uh, she, her behaviour became erratic, didn't yeah. it? And I mean, yeah. clearly, she was scarred by Dino's passing as well. Of course, she lost her boy. And she's, yeah, Penelope Cruz p- plays her character in this film that comes out later on this okay. year. And she's a hell of an actress, actor. Uh, and she's, I'm, I'm sure, she will get to the heart of I hope what so. her behaviour is like. I hope so. I, ju- I, I really worry when all these films come out. You know, I worried about Lamar '66, Four First for oh, yeah. or, you know, and. I watched Rush the other day, the Hunt, the hunt Louder thing. Yeah. And actually, it didn't annoy me as much as it had the first time. But I, I just hope that, you know, sometimes you have a choice, don't you, between doing something which is honest 
and important yeah. and right, yeah. or doing something which you think going to put a few more bums on the seats. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why I think in Rush that you know James Hunt was such a two-dimensional cardboard cutout character. And I just hope that they don't just turn... I hope that we see the nuance. I hope we see the... Mm. Actually, I think that um, the portrayal of Ken Miles in Le Mans 66 was exceptionally good. Because I, I knew a bit about Ken Miles, and I think that that was actually a pretty good um, way of showing him in all this. And I just hope this film shows us who Angelo Ferrari really was, not mm. just some, you know, I don't know, brooding... Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the cliché. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I want to get a, get a sense of who the man really was, not who he was portrayed to be. Yeah, for the latter part of his life. And if Laura really was a fiery, erratic character, goodness me, Penelope Cruz will certainly portray that. I'm sure. Um, so, goodness me, a hell of a life. Died age ninety. Yeah. Um, and of course, the way he died was really quite remarkable, wasn't it? This is 1988. That unbelievable season where McLaren looked like they're going to win every race. Um, yeah. Enzo dies in uh, it was August, wasn't it? Uh, nineteen eighty-eight. Is that right? Yeah, fourteenth of August, nineteen eighty-eight. Yeah. A few weeks later, Italian Grand Prix. Italian Grand Prix. Yeah. Monza. Yeah. The one race. Yeah. That McLaren don't win, and it's won by Ferrari. One two. One two. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you couldn't. I mean, it script just, that. You couldn't script that. You couldn't mm. script that. Um, it's you know it is the most. I don't know well, what you call chills, it. Doesn't it? Serendipitous. It is. Yeah. It's very strange, given how close to Ferrari's death it was. Given that it was Monza. Given it was mm. a one-two. Given mm. that nobody else won any other race that year. Mm. I mean, you know, if you if you'd so if you, if if you'd submitted that as a sort of plot twist, yeah, in your Michael Mann film, they would have just said, come, oh, come on. on. You know, this is Hollywood, but for goodness sake, we have to appear to be slightly serious. And yet it happened. Yeah. It's also the race, you know, after which the McLaren F1 got born. Oh, yes. Yeah. Same the, race. At the airport. Yeah. yeah. At the airport. Um, yes. Can I, can I do my... I know I said this on the podcast before, but I think it's such a sort of insight into Ferrari's character that, you know, aged whatever it would have been, 89, I think, um, somebody asked him to comment on the F40. Um, and this this very senior elderly gentleman who had created all this stuff turned around and said, "That car's so fast, you'll shit yourself." <laughs> <laughs> I just, do you know what? I really for that comment alone, there's a bit of me which thinks actually maybe he has had a slightly bad press. Yeah, um, because clearly he had a sense of humour. Yeah, um, he does seem to have done or some description, mm. um, or maybe he just didn't care about it. I don't know, but I mean and absolutely fascinating probably the single most fascinating character this industry's ever produced i think certainly so. up there and, um, and particularly given his achievements his accomplishments what his legacy what he built yeah just extraordinary um also you know one other thing is that and i think the team has still got it and, and so let's just talk about the ferrari of today and what they still owe that man mm. You know, Ferrari in Formula One is going through, if not its longest drought, I think by the end of this season or by the start of next, it'll be the longest yes. winless championship list yeah. it has ever had. And yet, even now, there will be Formula One drivers out there who dream of driving for Ferrari. Mm. Mm. You know, back in Enzo's um, day, 
they went through huge droughts. It was nothing, you know, we sort of think, oh, you're all conquering. All winning. It, it no. just wasn't like that. No. You know, fits and spurts. You know, sometimes, you know, were, he was really great in Formula One. Sometimes he was really great in sports car racing. Very rarely at the same time. Um, and yet still, everybody wanted to race a Ferrari because he is as close to a monarch as that business has ever had. Yeah. He is the sovereign. Mm. Um, and whether you win or whether you don't, if you, you know, if you can go to your grave, being able to say, I was a works Ferrari racing driver. That's like the ultimate accolade, isn't mm, it? Yeah. That's why, that's why Michael Schumacher went there in 1996, mm. you know, uh, eight years after Enzo Ferrari died, joined a team with a shitbox car with a view to giving up mm. the next few years of his life when he could so easily have just been racking up championship after mm. championship. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to go and race a Ferrari. And I'm sure today... Um, there are any number. If you, I'd be really interested to ask someone like Leo, Lando or George. Mm. Phone rings. Mm. It's Ferrari. What do you do? Mm. Does it what, still have that draw? Does it, yeah, regardless of the result. More than a decade of, after they won a championship. Yeah. It's 13, 14 years or something. Do, does it still have... Does it still? Do you, is there something... You know, forget about whether you think they're going to get you your yeah. title or not. Does the fact it's Ferrari still make a difference? Mm. I bet you everyone... They, they might not say, oh, yes, I'd drop everything, but I bet you they would all say, yeah, it's Ferrari, it makes a mm. difference. Mm. They are Formula One. They are the only team mm. to have been on the grid in every single season of Formula One since 1950. Yeah. I mean, that is a hell of a legacy, that, yeah. that alone. And they it? owe it to a bloke who died 35 years ago. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So we, we were very lucky to get to talk to Mel Nichols, one of our writers... Um, a few weeks ago, episode 174, if you want to go and listen to that, he talks about meeting Enzo Ferrari. Yeah. Extraordinary thing to get to do. Which he did a few times. Yeah. 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 He and knew Enzo Ferrari. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we'd be, oh, yes, I knew it. And it turns out that they, 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 they saw each other over a crowded room. Mm. But uh, Mel knew Enzo. Mm. Yeah. Gosh. And he does describe what it was like to be in his presence in episode 174, if you want to go and listen to that. But for now, we're going to have to leave that there. Enzo Ferrari. What a life. Mm. Hopefully that makes for good podcast fodder as well. I think it does. It does. Um, so thank you everybody for listening. Please do go and subscribe to the podcast or follow the podcast. Honestly, it helps us enormously. Thank you to everyone who has done that. Um, and thank you for listening. Remember to tune in again next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 